You know the uh, Geico commercials, the ones that went, uh, if you do something, if you're, such, if you're such and such, it's what you do. Remember those commercials? So the one was, the one that they played way too many times was the, um, the horror movie one. If you're in a horror movie, let's get in the running car to get away from the bad guy. And uh, what? No, there's a wall full of chainsaws over there. Let's hide behind it instead. And they like, and then they all go hide there. And then um, there's the picture of the mass, the uh, axe murderer being like, you know, he's like, and the tagline is, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's what you do, right? Well, if you're a pastor, you look for analogies. Uh, it's what you do. Everything in life ha that happens. And then somebody will say, too, oh, you, that's going to make it in a sermon someday, right? Right? Uh, yeah, everything in life is like that. And, and, and for me, for me, in my life, in my world. And um, today's passage is uh, like the quintessential passage for analogies. Because James is going to talk about the tongue. And he's going to say, it's like this, 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 it's like this. And so for a pastor, it just warms the cockles of my heart. And so I'm going to take you there today with me, and you're going to experience the joy of teaching by analogy as soon as I go back to my seat and get my sermon. Maybe it wasn't Diane. It wasn't Diane. Maybe it was me. Diane, I repent. If I, if I took it down there myself, I repent. But it has happened before where the prayer person sneakily walks away with more papers than he came up here with. <laughs> Let's go to the uh, scriptures. I'm in James chapter 3, and I'll start in verse 2. He says... For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. Of course, the implication is none of us is perfect in what we say, right? If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set afire, ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come 
Blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Look at that string of analogies. It's glorious. The bit, the tongue is like a bit in the mouth of a horse. The tongue is like a rudder on a great ocean-going vessel. So small, and yet it sets the course for the rest of the life. Then negatively, the tongue is like a tiny flame with the power to ignite a forest ablaze. Unlike the beasts, the tongue cannot be tamed. It is like a poison. It is like a stain. It is like a spring trying to produce both fresh and salt water or a tree trying to produce all different kinds of fruits. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There's not a person in this room who believes that. So why do we teach little children to sing it? The tongue is full of power. And words do hurt. Our first step in coming away from this scripture today is simply to recognize. It's simply to recognize the power that I have in my tongue. You might be in elementary school, junior high school, high school. You might be towards the end of your life and maybe you think nobody listens to me anymore. That is baloney. You carry with you a tremendous amount of power. The power to bless, the power to curse. It's the power of the tongue. The first step is just to recognize that you have great power. The tongue is one of the ways that you're made in God's image. How did God make everything that there is ex nihilo or out of nothing? How did he do it? He did it by speaking. He had a will. He spoke the words the will, and, and his will came into being. You too, you have a will. And just by speaking, I'll take a double quarter pounder of cheese, please. <sighs> Comes into being. Silly example. But truthfully, you have a tremendous amount of power to bring your will into being with your words. We, 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 we exercise this power as, as a culture, collectively, as a race even, the whole human race. We exercise this power. I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the movie Ice Age when uh, Manny the Mammoth and Sid the Sloth, they discover this baby, a human baby, and uh, they're trying to figure out why all the animals are afraid of this thing. You look at you, you're not a threat, and they pick it up, and then you got no fur, you got no fangs or teeth or claws. Well, how are you some great threat, right? And it's true, human beings, we don't have any of that stuff. But we do have, what we do have has made all the difference. A mind to imagine things other than the way that they are. 
and a tongue to communicate what I'm imagining to you and you communicate what you're imagining to me and then together we build something. And from that, from the mind and the tongue, human beings have dug into the dirt of the earth and created everything that you see here. Dirt and rocks. Right, guys? Two years ago, men's retreat, Corvettes. Nothing but dirt and rocks. Skyscrapers, jet aircraft, space stations. Dirt and rocks. But somebody could imagine something else and they could speak it. The story of the Tower of Babel that Diane read illustrates how this can be a very dangerous thing. It can be a good thing, but it can be a very dangerous thing as well. A people all speaking the same language, they convinced one another that they could solve all of their ills, all of their problems. They could build a city that would keep them safe and that would make them famous. So they decide to put this tower in the middle of the city that's going to reach up into the heavens. Now this tower, very well-known occurrence in the ancient world. They're called ziggurats, and we know of these things. They're always next to the temple in the town. Uh, sometimes we think that the, perp the story of Babel, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get up to God. But that's not true. That's not what's going on here. Uh, the ancients didn't have any idea of getting up to God. What the, the purpose of the ziggurat was that the God would come down from heaven, down the tower, and take up dwelling space in the temple that you've built for him. And he would be your God. He would be so, and he would protect you, and he would go to war for you, and this, that, and the other thing. The problem here in the Tower of Babel is that they're using their speech to make a name for themselves. If they're going to do anything like this, it should be done uh, to make God's name great, not their name great. But here, look what they're doing. Instead, they're essentially trying to lure God out of heaven down into their tower so they could shackle him, so they could put a chain around his neck and hold him captive and make him do their bidding, make him do their will. Does it make sense why this might offend God, why this might arouse God's anger to treat him like this? God identifies the problem. He says, hey, look, they, they, they have no, they, they can communicate too freely with one another. And look what they've been able to do. Look how they've been able to glorify themselves. Look how they've been able to desecrate my name. And he scatters them. So step two, I reckon, would be to recognize, well, first we've recognized that you have power. Step two would be to recognize that your, 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 your culture has power too. To recognize the power of my culture's collective speech. We communicate way more and way more effectively than they did in the ancient world. And we're doing far greater damage or far greater, I say, what's a good word for it? Desecration to the name of God in our culture today. And it's only a matter of time before his patience come to an end and he acts. Perhaps that's happening now. Speech of a culture, it can be dangerous because the group, the family, the crowd, the mob, the nation, they can talk us into all kinds of things that we know are wrong. 
and through their words they can distract us so easily. This is probably why the author of the Hebrews says that we need to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And at Babel, they're trying to stir one another up to pride, to, 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 to national pride uh, or to, to, to cultural pride, to human pride. Look what all we can do. We don't need to submit to God. He, the writer of the Hebrews says, look, you stir one another up to good works and love. And to do this, you don't neglect meeting together but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I lament that the church is gathering all the less. Fewer and fewer times a week as we fill our schedules up with other pursuits. Well, the speech of an individual can be dangerous too. And the problem is not the tongue per se, because James says the tongue has the power for some good stuff. You can steer an ocean-going vessel. I mean, that's a proper use of power, right? But he says if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Most of us, see, this is all of us, see, this, the problem is we don't use the tongue to control the horse in a good way or to control the ship to stay away from the rocks, to stay in the, in the open water. We don't use the tongue for that purpose. Everything always goes sideways the more we speak. Given this tool of great, great power, we don't use it to bless, to calm, to give peace. Just think, you know the term sins of omission and sins of commission? A sin of commission is a sin I commit. I rob a bank. That is a sin of commission, right? But a sin of omission is something I could have done, but I didn't do for whatever reason. I could have done it. So I was in the back seat of the guy, and he robs a bank, and I didn't try to stop him or didn't call any police. That's a sin of omission. Or I have the opportunity to bless my brothers or sisters with an encouraging word, and I don't do it. James says because of this tendency, we're using our tongue for bad purposes to hurt people, and we're not using our tongue to bless people. It, it's like a flame. It becomes a flame. And now in the ancient world, there were very few things more scary than a flame, than fire. Maybe the open sea. But most people wouldn't go out on the open sea. See, they didn't know what was it. It was dark. It was un people died out there. The sea was terrifying to them. But the most people didn't go out on the sea, but they did know what fire was. And in the ancient world, you didn't have any government saying, make, make sure your curtains are flame retardant. Make sure you've you know, you got so many fire extinguishers per square feet. Uh, you know, There's no fire department that's going to come running. Once a fire got started, there was nothing they could do but get out of the house and then watch their house burn. Sometimes watch the whole city burn. The city of Jericho was burnt to the ground. Archaeologists discover evidence to it. Digging down, they find 
a whole layer of the city still has the residue of ancient fires around it. James says that's what a tongue is like. That's what a tongue is like. It lights an unquenchable fire. So I suppose step three would be to recognize the damage that my tongue has caused. First, I've seen the power that my tongue has. Then I see collectively the power that my culture's speech has to uh, convince me of things that are not true or to distract me. Sometimes my culture just chirps so much at me. Care about this, 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 that I end up listening to it. And what am I not doing? I'm not putting God first. My culture can say, well, step three is to recognize that my own tongue personally has caused a great deal of damage. And now maybe at this point, maybe you have your next step figured out. Maybe it's that you need to make a sincere apology to someone. Maybe you have hurt someone with your speech. You'll say you're sorry to God, but not to your brother or mother or daughter. Are you really sorry? Have you really repented? One of the very few limitations Scripture puts on the Lord's Supper that we're going to have in just a few minutes here is that if you've wronged any brother or sister, go. Make that right first. And then come back to the table. God's grace will be here. You don't have to worry about that. But go and make it right. Maybe there are fires still burning in your relationships. Maybe you had a fight just last night. You said some things. Fires are still burning. Maybe the fire's out but the rubble, it's still smoldering. The damage has been done, and it's just awkward. Or maybe the fire happened so long ago, but you know what? Nobody's ever bothered to revisit the scene of the fire and to begin to rebuild something. It's just been left. That relationship has just been left as a wasteland. One step further down this path, before we go into step four, realize that when you speak against a person, you have actually done violence to God himself. When you speak against a person, and what I mean is, you know, cursing words, you are a fool, what Jesus said. You who say to your brother, you fool, are in danger of the fires of hell. When you declare a precious, miraculous masterpiece of God, and that is any human being, when you declare them to be subhuman or worth less, you're doing violence to God himself. And in a way, you're bringing Using Again, think back to the power that you have and you're, you're bringing on a spiritual level. I'm not talking interpersonal level now. I'm talking on a spiritual level. You're standing before a masterpiece of God created in his own image whom he loves. You're saying 
you fool, you bleepity bleep, you whatever. You are bringing hell into our space. You're not creating a holy space, a sacred space. Well, the best part about God's grace is that even when we've burned our relationships to the ground, he is still able to rebuild them. He is still able to bring healing to create something new. Now, now what if you're the person, I've kind of been a little hard on you for a minute here. What if you're the person who's been on the receiving end of really hurtful, wicked words? Or what if you never heard words of affirmation from the people you longed to hear them from the most? Dad never said, you're good enough. He never said, I'm proud of you. He never said, I love you. Dads and grandpas, say those words. Say those words to your wives, to your kids, to your grandkids. It's not enough that, oh, they know I love them. They need to hear the words. And they might not have you tomorrow. Say the words today. But what if this is you? Maybe dad or grandpa is already gone and he said some hurtful things to you. Or uh, just never said what you needed to hear. Words of encouragement. Well, you're not without hope. What I want you to do is to replace what others have said with what God has said. I want you to replace what others have said with what God has said. What has God said about you? He's made you. And the people who would judge you in this world, they don't get to judge. They don't get to say if you're good enough, if you're worthy of love. Only God gets to determine your worth. And what does God say about you? Oh, he sees your brokenness. He knows, how, he knows how many times you've rebelled against him and done bad things and said bad things. He knows more than you do. But he still says you are so worth it. I will stop at nothing to bring you home to me. He calls you a sheep, which means he is what? Shepherd. He calls you adopted, which means he is a father. He calls you royalty. He is a king, and he calls you royalty. He calls you an heir. He is the benefactor. He is the owner of the estate, and you're an heir. He calls you his image. He is your maker. He says you bring him joy. 
He is a perfect lover. What else has Jesus said about you? What else has God said about his people? Now, there are other people who are going to keep saying nasty things, and I can't promise that you're going to hear the words of affirmation, the words I love you that you so want to hear. I can't promise that. But what God says about you will last forever. Come back again and again. What does my God say about me? And then this is where you get step five from. This is where you get the strength. Now that we've gone all this way. See, if you take James's letter and you say, okay, I'm going to, pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to take a deep breath, and I'm going to go be good. And I'm going to not speak bad things, and I'm going to speak good things, and I'm just going to do good, 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 good. I'm going to do a good job. You will become exhausted. And you will either become conceited and self-righteous and look down upon people who you think don't do as good as you, or you will become dejected and say, woe is me, I'm such a loser, because I didn't do as good as I knew I should have done. No, we have to go through the whole process. You have to see your power. You have to see who God made you to be. You have to see what he, God has done for you, how much he loves for you. And then, now, finally, at the end, you use that well that you have dug, that well of what God says about you. You, di you dip your bucket down into that well, and you draw up from it the strength to now speak to other people differently. The strength to now where before you were silent, you didn't say anything. Now you can say, I appreciate this about you. I see this beautiful thing about you. I want to uh, uh, bless you. And in other words, where you used to say things like, what's the matter with you? What, you can't get anything right. What in the world were you thinking? I can't ever imagine anybody wanting to be with. When you would say things like that, you bite your tongue. And you say, how dare I? How dare I? But it comes from that well, because those things that Jesus said about you, he said about that other person as well. And this is how we change. This is how we grow up into the body. This is how we become a family that doesn't talk to each other the way that the families of the world talk to each other. And behind each other's backs, too. That's, just, that's probably more important in some ways. How we talk about one another when they're not listening. How you talk about your spouse. How you talk about your friend. How I talk about you. How you talk about me. There's great power in these things. Right? But this is how change begins. 